The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey guys, how's it going? Everybody feeling good? It's like feeling like summer out there a little bit, huh? Yeah? All right, I'm going to move back so I don't feed back. Hey guys, a couple quick announcements just before we get started. Um, so we're moving into a new season uh, just for the next three months of what um, Wednesday nights are going to look like in summer. I think we've talked uh, from the pulpit on Sunday a little bit about this, but just to give you guys a heads up, um, this will be our last Wednesday night in here as a group. Um, and then next Wednesday is going to be the Awanas celebration, sort of the finale of all of the Awana kids over there. So if you're a parent um, of an Awana kid, you're going to want to be, you're going to want to, <laughs> see what I did there? I'll, you want to be there? Um, you're going to want to be there uh, next Wednesday for sure for that. Uh, and then the Wednesday after that, okay, everybody say June 1st. Okay, we are going to do the first Wednesday of every month is going to be a big fellowship gathering for the summer. Okay, the first one is going to be June 1st, okay? So uh, there's one in June, there's one in July, there's one in August, and this is going to be at the Hub next door. If you guys haven't been over there, we remodeled it recently. There's a fantastic sound system in there. There's um, a stage and there's an area to hang out. We're going to do, um, we're going to have a taco truck come in, so if you want to buy some tacos, we're going to have snow cones, we're going to have games, there's going to be childcare. we're going to have worship. It's going to be a really cool event. So in two weeks... At 6.30, be sure and be over at the Hub for that. Um, and then next Wednesday, just so you know, we won't be in here doing this. It'll be next door celebrating the completion of the Iwana program, which has been fantastic, by the way. It's super cool. So that's kind of uh, some of the stuff we'll be doing. You guys probably on Sunday got a little handout that had a bunch of more events, too, that we're going to be doing for the summer. Um, and we will be relaunching uh, in the fall on Wednesday with a brand new series. So tonight we're going to finish Ecclesiastes. We're going to do four chapters tonight. Are you guys excited? Buckle up, baby. We're going to fly through this. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll get, we'll get to work. God, I'm just so thankful tonight for your grace that I can even stand before you. God, that your Holy Spirit can be in this place, living within us. That the veil was torn, Christ, by the blood that you shed on the cross. That now we can enter into communion with you, Lord that we don't have to rely on some flawed and broken priest to go in and make atonement for us, that now we get to enter into the Holy of Holies directly and be with you, Father. Thank you that we're your kids. Lord, tonight as we try to just finish up this book, um, I just want to get out of the way, God. Lord, when I talk, it's just just really not life-giving to anyone. But God, when you talk, It transforms lives. So God, would you speak to us tonight, Lord, directly through your word uh, and through this book of Ecclesiastes, God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he looked... And he took the blind man, pardon me, by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So here we have this story in John chapter 8, verse 22. If you guys want to go read that later, it's, it's a pretty cool story where Jesus is in Bethsaida. And some, some people brought this blind man um, up to Jesus. Of course, they had to bring him to Jesus because he couldn't see. Okay, he couldn't find Jesus on his own. He had no clarity of sight. He had no ability to find his way to this Messiah, to this rabbi um, who could heal him. So his friends bring him to Jesus, and Jesus sees the man and sees that he is blind. And Jesus does something extremely weird. He spits on his face, uh, which is super weird. And we could get into kind of some reasons why that is, but I'm not going to go there. I'll let you study that on your own. Um, but 
All that aside, he, he, he let this man know that he was going to heal him physically by placing his hands on his eyes, by using spittle. Um, and, and what happened, though, is the first time he did it, it sort of half worked, okay? Which is kind of weird. That's the only miracle we actually have recorded of Jesus that it only half worked, <laughs> Um, which is kind of weird. And again, you can go study that on your own. I'm not going to try to tell you why. Um, so it didn't work all the way. He asks the man, can you see? And he says, yeah, I see what looks like men, uh, but it looks more like trees. It doesn't really look like actual men. Uh, and so Jesus says, oh, better do it again. Lays his hands on him again the second time. Asks him again, can you see now? And this blind man says, yes, I can see clearly and perfectly. Interesting story. Okay, interesting story. But Jesus, let me just say this. Jesus cares about our sight. He cares about us being able to see and to be able to see clearly. And I don't just mean physically because I'm sure there's people that are blind in this world whom Jesus loves uh, very much. Um, But Jesus cares about our sight. He cares that we're able to see and he cares about um, our perspective, one thing I've learned in life, um, my wife and I especially as we've been married and as we've gone through seasons and, and different parts in life is that um, joy in life has very little to do with your circumstances and very much to do with your perspective. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, sometimes you think if our circumstances would just change, uh, if we just got that job, if, if things were just less tense at home or whatever, you fill in the blank, then my life would be so much better. Um, but when I look back at my life and even look back at my wife and I's life together, we've been the happiest at some of the hardest times. We've been the most joy-filled at some of the times where we were the poorest, where we struggled the most, uh, where, where things were hard, and it had very little to do with our circumstances and very much to do with our perspective, with the way that we looked at what we were going through, the way that we viewed what we were going through. Um, we all look at life through lenses. Did you know that? Okay, um, on my iPhone, uh, I can take a picture of something, and it can look pretty mediocre, Uh, And then I can swipe my finger, and instantly I look like I'm somewhere amazing. Okay, I do this on my map, my run app. I'll go for a run, pull out my phone, I'll take a picture of a sunset or something, and it looks, eh, okay. And then I'll put this, like, lens or this filter on it, and it looks amazing. Like, I don't even, like, people are like, oh, I didn't even see that sunset. Where was that? I'm like, well, it wasn't real. (laughs) I made it with a filter. I made it with with, uh, a fake lens, basically, that goes on the picture. And this is essentially how we live most of our lives. Uh, we live most of our lives with some sort of a lens on. We see things through a lens, and, and it changes the way that we see things oftentimes. Now, some people live lives with lenses that are, um, how do I say this, uh, optimistic, okay? Like they see things better than they really are, you know? And then some people live life with lenses that see things uh, kind of worse than they really are, but we all have lenses, and the question isn't necessarily what lens uh, do you have, it's, it's more like what is really behind the lens, Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is so interesting because it's this man, the preacher, who we think may be Solomon, more than likely was Solomon, uh, calls himself the preacher. This man is addressing life, all different avenues of life, flushing out all different kinds of of, um, life through a perspective that is unfiltered. Well, I shouldn't say it's unfiltered. Uh, through a perspective that's very raw and, and, and very unchanged, okay? He is just telling it how it is. He's telling it how he sees it. It's very, uh, it's very honest and it's very real. He's walked us through literally every nook and cranny of life and shown us how vain and horrible and depressing and lifeless each of these things are. He's walked us through work, through relationship, through affluence, money, power, indulgence, prominence, honor, knowledge, food, the list goes on. He's taken us through the vanity, the pointlessness of all of these things, and he's done it through a lens that's not filtered. He's done it through a lens that's completely honest, completely raw. Perspective is a big thing. Remember I said in the beginning, your perspective really changes how you file things, how you live things, the way that you view things, the the lens that you decide to, to look at things through. Think about this. If somebody blindfolded you, this pulpit's like rocking. It's awesome. You see that? It's cool. I'm going to be rocking it all night. Um, 
if somebody blindfolded you, that was a squirrel moment, wasn't it? Um, squirrel, okay. Uh, if somebody blindfolded you and dropped you into the Upper Ubangi, and they didn't tell you where it was, and you didn't even know what Upper Ubangi was, uh, you would be super confused, right? You would be very lost. You wouldn't know which animals were poisonous. You wouldn't know which direction to go. Um, you, you really would have no context by which, you'd have no perspective by which to understand how to get out of the situation that you got in. Now, if somebody dropped you into Upper Ubangi and said, hey, I'm dropping you into Upper Ubangi, and go north. Here's a compass. Watch out for snakes. Red touches black. You're okay, Jack. Red touches yellow. You're a dead fellow. I learned that from Bill Nye, the science guy, when I was a kid. Uh, so that's the knowledge that you need to have. Here's a machete. Uh, you know, watch for leeches. Okay, go. There's your perspective. I know where I am. I know where I need to go. Now I can go. But if you have no perspective, then you're completely lost. Okay? Completely lost. Solomon, if you remember the story I told in the beginning... Solomon has perspective, but he doesn't have all the perspective. He has some perspective, but he doesn't have all the perspective. He's viewing life through a very limited lens. And I want you guys to really get this before we wrap up this book, because I want you to treasure this book. I want you to come back to it in the future and read it. And we'll kind of give you some reasons why I want you to do that. But as we conclude it, I want you to remember that this is... We're, we're reading a book that is a man venting through his raw and unfiltered lens, but it's a man that has very limited perspective. He is not the Christ. He's not even a prophet. In fact, I would say, I don't even know that he really got the heart of God. Okay, and you can, you can argue with me on that. I've read a lot of Solomon. I've taught this book for the last three months, and I, I have a hard time really feeling like Solomon had a really good perspective. I kind of feel like he's the guy that Jesus spat on his eyes, and he started to kind of see. If you remember the book of 1 Kings, Solomon at this moment, it was one of the best moments we see Solomon in, where he actually prays that God would give him wisdom. So he's basically saying, God, open my eyes so I can see the world the way it is. And God gives him wisdom. But to me, it reminds me of this moment where Jesus spits on his eyes and he kind of sees, but not fully. It's like Solomon is considered the wisest man of his day. But when you read him, he's still so foolish. It's like he gets it, but he doesn't really get it. He sees men, but they look like trees. He can't really discern that they're actually people. Okay, That's really kind of... The just of, of the lens that this book is spoken through. I say that because we need to see this book for what it is. And we need to see the value that's in it for what it is. Perspective is huge. The way that you view things will determine everything that you do in life. Think about just a thousand years ago. The perspective of mankind was so limited. That doesn't mean we were any smarter or we are any smarter now because we're not. But our perspective was so limited that we actually thought the world was flat. We actually thought that uh, you could fall off the edge of it. Okay? You actually thought there was no more world to discover other than the little bit that we knew. Uh, we thought that we were the center of the universe, didn't we? That everything revolved around us, even when we found out the world wasn't flat. Uh, we had some serious misconceptions. I mean, we used to bleed people. Like, we used to literally take all the blood out of someone because we thought that would heal them. Because we had very little perspective. We were in Ubangi, right? Don't know where I am. Don't know who we are. No perspective. Don't know how to live. And we're making decisions based off of bad perspective. And Solomon, we have to get this right. Solomon is sitting at a horizontal level showing us what he sees. That's all it is. He's saying, man, this sucks, and that's all bad, and this is a bummer, and life is hard here, and life is over there. But he's saying it without very much perspective. So just keep that in mind. And really what I want to talk to you guys about tonight is the subject of perspective, if you can't tell. I want to talk about, first of all, the reason perspective is so important. The importance of perspective. I, I want to bring hopefully some closure to this book. We've got to cover four chapters, so we better get to work. And I want to show you how this book can be a source of perspective for you for years to come. If someone, you know, life basically is you bangy, okay? So you're dropped off, you're here, you're confused, you don't know what to do, you don't know where to go. Let this book be, as we study it and, and conclude it, let this book be a source of perspective for you in the future. So 
Here's what we're going to do. Here's the roadmap. If you guys are taking notes, we're going to just split this into four things. I'm not going to read all four chapters, because if I did, you guys would all be asleep, and then I would be a failure as a teacher. So I'm going I'm to sort of cherry pick some thoughts and, and kind of walk you through the gist of some of these chapters. Um, but first, we're going to look at the result of not having perspective, okay? The result of not having perspective, and that's found in chapters 9, 10, and 11, Okay, so we're going to skim through some of that. Then we're going to look at how to gain perspective in chapter 12. When you, need, um, when you need perspective in chapter 12 and how to keep perspective. So that's just kind of a quick roadmap of where we're going to go. So let's talk about the result of not having perspective. So after spending most of the book um, that he wrote in Ecclesiastes unpacking the vanity of life, he sort of spends the last four chapters talking about death. Uh, which is kind of bleak. Um, he, he's, he gets very depressed um, for most of the book about life, and then he spends the last chapters getting very depressed about death. Um, so that's kind of what we're going to look at. Uh, so if you got your Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1. He starts off by saying this, but all this, pause, what is he saying? Everything that has been said in the beginning of this book, all of this, if you've joined us for any of these, you know it was a lot of depressing, uh, raw and honest viewed life. All of this, verse 1, chapter 9, I laid to heart. In other words, I allowed it to sit on my heart. I meditated on it. I allowed it to move me. And then he says, I examined it. He says, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice, as the, as the good is one, as the good one is, pardon me, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. What is he talking about? He's essentially saying this, that it is the same for all. Everyone is going to die. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how good you are, how bad you are, what color you are, what size you are, what shape you are, what religion you are. Everyone is essentially going to die. This is a ground level truth. I'm going to use that word, those two words a lot tonight. Okay, ground level. What I mean by that is it's a horizontal perspective. You're looking at what's around you. You're not up from Google Maps. You're not up in an airplane. You're not up on a mountain. You don't see the landscape fully. You don't see uh, where to go. You're on a very flat perspective. And from a flat perspective, this is Solomon venting about what he sees on his flat perspective. And he says, man, everybody around me dies. There's no one that gets away with it. Doesn't matter how good they are. Doesn't matter how bad they were. In verse 3, he says, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. So he's not only saying that everyone dies, he's saying, I, I think there's something wrong with that. Like it's not supposed to be that way. Okay, again, from his ground level perspective, he says something doesn't feel right about death. And is he right? Yes. Okay, something is not right about death. That's why Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Even though he knew he was going to raise his friend, death still brought sorrow to his heart because death was never meant to reign. Okay? We know from Romans 5.14, it says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So the consequences of sin, Adam's sin specifically, has brought death onto the whole world. Now, death is something we have to deal with. Our bodies age and get older, and we wear out, and things wear out, and our time ticks down. I just turned 27 yesterday. I'm almost 30, and then I'm going to be 50, and then I'm, I'm basically dead, right? So... I'm just, I'm just joking, guys. <laughs> no, but seriously. <clears throat> Man, 40 is coming like a freight train. Um, not that there's anything wrong with 40. 40's the new, 40's the new 20, really. It's too late. I'm done. Okay. Death is not supposed to be, right? Death is not supposed to be. Um, that's all I'm trying to say. Uh, and death is colorblind. Okay? Death takes anyone and everyone, and it's not intended to be that way. And he's observing that. Okay? Um, 
Look at verse 5 through 6 of chapter 9. He says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Again, here's a perfect example of someone who has very limited sight. Okay? God, me and Jeremy Neff had this conversation. God, why did you put this book in the Bible? Why, why did you do that for? I mean, it's, this guy's kind of a bonehead. He's, he's, a lot of people think that Solomon didn't even believe in heaven. A lot of people think Solomon actually didn't even believe in eternal life because he never mentions it. And he says verses like this, that when people die, that's it, you're gone. Okay, which, by the way, was a common theology, actually, in, in Judaism. There was the Sadducees that believed. Uh, they didn't believe in the eternal. They didn't believe in the afterlife. It was fairly common. But a lot of people think Solomon didn't even believe um, in eternal life. And I'm, and, and I'm talking to Jeremy, like, why did he put this book in the Bible? Here's what I think the reason for it is. He wanted us to see how clueless we are. He wanted us to see how little we have perspective on life when we look at the ground level. When we look at the horizontal, when we look around us, we have very little insight into the way that it is. And, and his statement here that basically death is it, that's over, you're gone, everything's done, is a very ignorant statement. And it's a very horizontal statement. It's coming from a man similar to myself who is very limited in his perspective. And God says, hey, I want you to read Ecclesiastes because I want you to remember how limited your perspective is. Okay? So just remember that as we go through this. Look at verse 10. Here's the result, okay, of this kind of thinking. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So essentially, he's saying, do as much as you can now, and he says this all throughout the book, live it up now, do as much as you can now, because when you die, that's it. Okay, that's a hedonistic mentality. That's basically, uh, I'm just going to please myself in any way that I possibly can. And that's the result of living life too long on the ground level, on having a horizontal worldview. Verse 12, he says, man does not know when he will die. He says, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. In verse 6 and 7 of chapter 10, he goes on in his observation to say that wisdom doesn't guarantee success. He says, Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. What he's basically saying here in his, sort of, in his rant um, is he's saying it, it's, it's all backwards. Sometimes the people that are supposed to be royalty end up being the slaves, and the people that are supposed to be the slaves end up being royalty. He's basically saying making the right decisions in life doesn't always guarantee that you're going to be successful and powerful. And then in verse 15 of chapter 10, sorry, I know this is a lot, but I'm just trying to cover some ground here and then we'll, we'll, we'll dig into this a little more. Uh, verse 15 of chapter 10, he says, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. In other words, when you have no perspective, it's exhausting. Okay, when you have no perspective, when, when your idea of what is right or wrong or true or, or, or what life is about is based off of your horizontal perspective, you're exhausted because you don't know where to go. Okay, that sounds like life for most human beings, doesn't it? We are completely exhausted because we're constantly trying things that don't work. We're constantly fighting our way through vines and bushes, trying to, to, to blaze a trail through life, realizing that trail went nowhere, turning around, going back, blazing another trail, exhausted from hacking at the weeds of life and trying to get somewhere to realize that that goes nowhere and then turning around and going back. The lack of perspective in life is exhausting. It's tiresome. And I always know when I am not living with perspective because I'm tired. And I don't just mean physically tired, like, oh, I put in a hard day's work and I'm tired. No, I mean, like, it, the very deep parts of my soul, I'm exhausted. And when I say, Lord, why am I so tired? It's usually because I have no perspective on what I'm doing in life. I'm just batting at weeds. And what I mean by weeds is just life, stuff, distractions, things, hobbies, friendships. Not that those, any of those things are bad, but when you do them without perspective, they're exhausting. Because they're trails up hills that go nowhere, right? And it's tiresome. That's what he's saying in verse 15 of chapter 10. 
If you have no perspective, life is a maze to you. You're just trying to get out. Not only does limited perspective affect you, but it affects everyone around you. Look at uh, chapter 10, verse 16. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. In other words, you are affected when your leaders have no perspective. Do you think our leaders have perspective in this country right now? No, they don't. There is so much angst in our country. If you listen to any kind of political radio right now, I mean, it's about ready to explode. Everyone hates the establishment. Everyone is in, like, we were, I voted yesterday, and my wife and I were looking at the ballot, and every single blurb on every single candidate was like, no government experience, I'm proud of it. It's like the new thing. It's like, I have nothing to do with government. Why? Because the government has no perspective. And so the government has failed us. The government is on a ground level, viewing things on a ground level, on the horizontal, just like we are. They're confused just like we are. They're trying to figure it out just like we are. They don't have any perspective. Government's not going to fix anything. You think Bernie's going to fix anything? Trump's going to fix anything? You think Hillary's going to? None of them are going to fix anything. They're going to make it worse because they have no perspective. Their scope is about this far in front of their nose. Just throw more money at it. And they're just as dumb as I am. So, I mean, you know, we, we are perspectiveless because we don't have elevation to see what's going on down there. And what the preacher is saying is, is that perspective affects everyone around you. When you don't have perspective, you affect those around you. So, how do we gain perspective? Okay, how do we, hopefully I've made a case for why we need it. Um, how do we gain perspective? Take a look at chapter 11, verse 5. The preacher says this, he says, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Okay, what the preacher is saying here is, you don't even understand how a baby is made. You don't even understand, uh, we understand how it's made, but we don't understand how it's made. You know what I mean? Um, you don't understand how the spirit indwells a human being, how it goes from being, uh, you know, some flesh and some bone to actually being a living, breathing soul. You can't figure that out. In 2020-something, 100 years ago, can we still not figure that out? We still don't understand how the body works. We still don't have perspective even on how our human bodies can run, what is causing us to have life. Okay? And he's saying that you don't even understand that. So how do you expect to know the work of God who makes everything? Okay, so the step one in gaining perspective is understanding that you have none. Okay? Understanding, pers getting perspective in life starts with the, the understanding and the, the, the admitting that I have no perspective. You need to be okay saying that. Okay, you need to be okay saying that. You need to, to, to say to yourself, self, I have such limited understanding of the universe that I have no understanding. I need understanding to be given to me. I need it to be sourced to me because I can't produce it. I don't have it within me, okay? I, I can't produce clarity. I don't have enough information. I don't have enough knowledge. I mean, trying to figure out the things of this world is complicated because we just don't have the information. Trying to figure out my own self is complicated. That's why we get counselors to try to help us figure out and even get to know ourselves. We don't have understanding. We don't have perspective. And you have to start by admitting that. I don't have perspective. Look at what Paul says to the Corinthian church who more than likely was very caught up in the wisdom of man looking to philosophers and looking to scholars to, to tickle their ears with new ideas. He says to them in 1 Corinthians 3.18, he says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Listen, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. In other words, you know nothing. We think we're so smart. Especially 
people that are really into to, to, to going to school and getting degrees and things like that. I know stuff. I've studied stuff. You don't know anything. You know who the most susceptible to thinking you're smart is? People that stand up here and teach. I mean, constantly. I, I start to study the Bible and think, oh yeah, maybe I know some things. I don't know anything. I don't know anything. The only reason I can stand up here and talk to you guys is because I'm not teaching you my thoughts. I'm teaching you this. Okay? We know nothing. Our scope is limited. Our perspective is small. We have such little amount of information, and God laughs when we think we know something. He laughs when we think we know something. In Romans, he says, nine, in chapter 9, verse 20, he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? I mean, God has designed us. Who are we to say that we have perspective? So it starts there. I think gaining perspective is the, ad, uh, the, the admitting that I don't have perspective. And then secondly, look at uh, chapter 12, verse 1. This is, the, th- this is the culmination of the book. This is the cherry on the top of 12 chapters of lamenting about the vanity and the dust and the dryness of life. Finally, Solomon says, here it is, okay? Here is purpose. He zooms out finally, and he says in verse 1 of chapter 12, remember also your creator. This is where perspective comes from. Realizing that you have a creator. This is where knowledge comes from. This is the conclusion to the whole book in verse 1 of chapter 12. And what he's saying is knowing who you are starts with knowing who made you. I don't think it's by any accident that he uses the word creator. Okay? Remember your creator. When you want perspective, remember your creator. You may write this down. When you know who you are, you will know what to do. That is so true. I didn't write that. I don't remember who said it, but it's true. Might have been Jeff. When you know who you are, you know what to do. Okay, it doesn't, it, life, life does not start by saying, okay, just someone tell me what to do. Give me five points, give me three points, give me a book. Life starts and begins and clarity starts and begins and perspective starts and begins with knowing who you are. And Solomon is concluding this long rant of his unfiltered lens by saying, just remember your creator. So that kind of leads to the question, well, who are you? <laughs> right? Just remember who you are. Okay, well, who am I? These are things we need to know. Here's a few things that you are. I just want to remind you guys. I want to refresh your spirits tonight, and I want you to hear this and believe this. That this is who you are. And if you are sitting here tonight and you're saying, I need perspective, I need clarity, I feel confused, I feel uh, like I don't know what to do about my marriage, I don't know what to do with my son or my daughter or my job, I feel frustrated or my health or anything in life, I'm looking for clarity, I'm looking for perspective, start by knowing who you are and let the water of these truths splash over you right now, okay? You are created. Yeah, so what? Yeah, I know Genesis says that. No, that's a big deal. And that's a source of truth that the, that the enemy and that the world is attacking and chopping the legs off of. You were not evolved. You were not an accident. You were created. You know what that means? It, it means that you were not an accident. It means that you have value because somebody made you. And, and God of the universe doesn't make things on accident and he doesn't make things for no reason. He makes things for specific reasons. You were created. That means if you're created, that in order to know who you are, you first have to know who made you, okay? In order to know who you are, you have to understand who made you. Secondly, who are you? You are a possession. Did you know that? You are possessed. And I don't mean like the creepy, scary movie, Possessed. You are a possession. Listen to this. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. God uh, speaking to his people. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You are God's. Not you are God's little g. You belong to God. Okay? You belong to God. He created you and he owns you. And listen to this. If you're a Christian, you are doubly owned. 
because he owned you when he made you and then he bought you again when you prostituted yourself out to the world. When I prostituted myself out to the world, he paid your ransom and bought you back from the sin that you chose over him. You are owned by God. He said, that sounds like, that sounds controlling because we're the millennial generation. No one controls us to do whatever we want, right? No, that's beautiful. Somebody owns you. And not just somebody, but somebody that loves you and cares about you deeper and more intricately than you can ever understand for all of eternity. He loves you and he owns you. You are his. That means that you can let go of the pressure of living a perfect life and say, God owns me. And he is going to take care of what he owns. The result of that You no longer carry the weight of finding your value because your value is found in him. He owns you. He finds you valuable because he made you valuable because he says you're valuable and you are his. You belong to him. It's who you are. Thirdly, you are made for a purpose. Don't let that just run past you. Think about that. Not only were you made, you were made for a purpose. God didn't just make you to be nothing. God didn't just make you to live in vanity, even though we struggle with the results of sin. God made you for a purpose. He made you for a reason. Uh, Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 1 verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. In other words, set apart before him in love. He predestined us for the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? What is our purpose? According to the purpose of his will. He made us for his purposes. He made us for his story. He made us for his kingdom. He made us for his glory. He made us for his pleasure. He made us to glorify himself because he is the greatest glory of the universe. He made us with purpose. You are not living a life for no reason. You have value. You have reason. You have purpose. The result of understanding that you are made with purpose is that you live a life on mission, not on vacation. Okay? We are professional vacationers in our culture. But when you get that, actually, God didn't give me, like, breath in my lungs so I could watch Netflix every night, even though there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying. Um, God gave me breath in my lungs for a kingdom purpose. To be on mission, to make disciples. As I said Sunday, to wring yourself out for God's people and for his mission. We operate better on mission, don't we? We just do. We just work better when we have a mission. People with no job and no point in life, they just rot. We need purpose. And God has given us that purpose. And fourthly, who are we? We are sons and daughters. Again, don't, you know, you hear that all the time. Yeah, you're sons and daughters. No, let that hit you. You have been adopted. Therefore, in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. This, this concept of a father, this concept of a father is, is huge. It changes everything. It takes God from being some kind of uh, angry, um, bipolar, deistic, uh, whatever in the sky who one second hates mankind and floods them and the next second is dying for them on the cross. It takes him from being that to being a dad that is ultimately concerned with the ultimate well-being of his sons and his daughters. Everything he does, he, he does it with love for you and towards you. It's completely different. You think you find that in false religions? Our religion is unique in that our God is our Father. This means you belong. And those are just a few things. That wasn't the point of my sermon, but I say that to say, do you see how clarity begins to come when you think about those things? 
Do you see how, how perspective begins to come when you understand who you are? When you think about these things that you're so confused about, what do I do about this? What do I do about that? Uh, why am I so anxious about this? Why am I so frustrated with that? When you start to understand who you are in God and what he made you to do, it starts to bring, <clears throat> starts to bring clarity and perspective. You start to get it. It's climbing the mountain of, of identity to be able to see and get out of the weeds and get above the brush and see who you are and what you are to do. So when do you need perspective? This might seem like an obvious question. When do you need perspective? But this is what Solomon or the preacher answers in chapter 12. Let's talk about when you need perspective. Chapter 12, verse 1. He says, remember the Lord, okay? Remember your creator in the days, firstly, of your youth. So the first thing he says, the first time that you need to remember and gain perspective and know who you are and know who your creator is, firstly, is in the days of your youth. Now, let me just say this. There is no time that you are in more need of clear perspective on who you are than when you are a youth. I just had a conversation with, with a friend that uh, does, does the chaplains, uh, the sheriff's chaplains thing, and he said that they've had this huge uptick in, in child suicides. Like they've had like 20 in the last like couple months or something. It's just like a crazy amount of kids that are committing suicide. And I sat there and I talked to him in this conversation. It was heartbreaking. And, and I, and I kind of went away from thinking like, what is it that causes that? I think largely it is they don't know who they are. No one can tell them. No one's telling them who they are. They're sitting in school, and they're sitting under their parents, and they're sitting under scientists, and they're sitting under politicians, and they're sitting under the leaders of our world who are saying that you are really just kind of a big cosmic hiccup. You are evolved. You are an accident. And evolution is doing something with you, but it may just be to get eaten by a bigger monster so evolution can continue on or whatever. They're not telling our kids who they are, and so they don't see their life as valuable. They don't see it as something worth keeping because no one's given them their identity. We need to tell our kids not just what we want them to be or how they should act, but we need to tell them who they are. If there's one thing I hope my kids learn from me, it's who they are. Why God made them. Why they have breath in their lungs. Why they have fingers and toes. It's not to go make money. It's not to go serve yourself. God made you for his purposes, and that purpose is great, and that purpose is valuable. Our kids need to know that. Second thing he says is we need to have perspective. We need to know who our creator is when, verse 1 of chapter 12, um, before the evil days come. Perspective needs to come before the evil days come, before things get hard. Listen to this quote by D.A. Carson. He says this, he says, we do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy. If by that point our beliefs, not well thought out, but deeply ingrained, are largely out of step with the God who has disclosed himself in the Bible and supremely in Jesus, then the pain from the personal tragedy may be multiplied many times over as we begin to question the very foundations of our faith. What he's saying is, is that if you're not prepared before hard times come, and if you're not grounded in who you are, you will get rocked. Man, you never know. <laughs> you never know how much you really believe in God or how much you really um, are rooted in, your identity is rooted in God until stuff starts to fall apart. I mean, she, your, your wife's walking out, you have no clue, completely, well, she's leaving me, I didn't even know she was mad at me, what is going on? I can't believe I just lost my job, how is that even possible? I didn't even know my boss didn't like me. Things start to unravel, your doctor tells you you have cancer, you had no clue that you were even close to having cancer, what could possibly cause that? Stuff hits the fan, stuff unravels, and in that moment, you will know whether or not you know who you are in the Lord, okay? And it's kind of scary, because a lot of times I'm like, man, who am I? My life is getting rocked, my life is getting shook, someone's just, it's like God's up there just shaking me up, and everything is falling apart, and, I'm, and, I, and, I, and in that moment, all you have is who you are in the Lord. That's all you have. 
All you have is who you are in the Lord. John Piper said, wimpy worldviews make wimpy Christians. We need to be grounded. Okay, why are we here on Wednesday nights? Why are we here on Sunday mornings? Why are we in the word? Why do we study the word? Because stuff is gonna get harder. It's not prosperity gospel. That's just life. It's gonna get harder. Relationships are gonna be strained. You may really have a hard time coming. You don't know when. I may really have a hard time coming. And we need to be grounded now in who God is. We need to be grounded now in who we are so that when things come, we are ready for it. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. Can I just say, my daughter cannot handle bad news. Like, it wrecks her. I mean, it's something as simple as like, hey, sweetheart, you're going to have the lollipop after your nap. She just loses it. I mean, on the ground, rolling around. I mean, it's just like you'd think that, you know, her dog just died. It's just like, and she's two. You know, she just has no ability to process no. She has no ability to process negative. And, and when Paul says that I want you to grow up so that you're no longer tossed to and fro, you're no longer affected by every wind of doctrine, you no longer can be lied to so easily and, and completely rocked when something hard happens, sink your roots into who you are so that you don't get pushed over, so that you don't get blown over when things get hard. We need to know who we are. We need to know who we are so we have perspective when things get hard. When things go wrong, you have the clearest moment of insight into how much you actually believe who you are in God. Remember that. And thirdly, he says, when you need perspective, when you need to believe in your creator, in verse 3, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent. There's going to come a time when the people that you rely on may not be there. The person that you lean on, your spouse, your friend, your mom, your dad, may not be there. There's going to come a time where we may not live in a country that's so comfortable, where our debt bubble may pop. There's going to come a time where the things that we lean on that keep us going through the day may disappear. And we need to think, who am I when all that's gone? Who am I when all that is gone? When my support, my support system is removed, when my sense of normal is gone, When your comfort's gone, when your food's gone, when your distractions are gone, when your cable is gone, when, what do you have left? Who are you in God? I've asked this question before to you guys, but I think sometimes about what my Christianity would look like if you took all the Christianese away, all the Christianese stuff. Like, think about this, like, what would my walk with God look like if I had no commentaries, no Bibles, no Bible studies, no church, no Christian friends, no Christian radio? Um, I had no Christian resources, no physical bef- benefits so whatsoever to being a Christian. There was no networking involved. There was no any single physical element to being a Christian at all. In fact, I was persecuted for being a Christian. No protection, no church, no anything. All I had was the Lord in prayer. That's all I had. What would my walk with God look like? If you strip back everything that we can so easily get distracted in, that can have absolutely nothing to do with God, we just like the subculture. If you strip back all that, what do you have left? We have to know who we are, despite all those things. A lot of people love church, but they don't love God. A lot of people love the, children, or the Christian subculture, but they don't love Jesus. A lot of people love Christian benefits, but they don't even love Christians. When you take all that stuff away, what's left? And you'll know, because there's going to be a time when you'll stand before the Lord, and all of that will be gone. All of it. Your spouse, your friends, your support system, all of it. I'm so blessed for those things, by the way. I'm so glad that I have those things. I'm so glad that I have hundreds of Christian friends that I love and that love me and that I can lean on and all of those things. But I have to take a serious look once in a while and make sure that I am really rooted in him and not just in the benefits that he's given me. You need to know who you are and that's what perspective does. Perspective allows you to see things the way they are. And can I say, that really was the early church. That was life for them. They didn't even have the Bible yet. (laughs) 
They had Old Testament prophets. They had Leviticus. They didn't have Jesus calling. They didn't have anything. They didn't have pre-digested little things they could read in the morning and Christian blogs. And they didn't have any, they didn't even have other Christians. It was like a small group of people that were persecuted and burned alive and, and all kinds of crazy things were done. That was life to them. And the church exploded. Do you know why? Because they, more than anyone else, treasured Christ because he's all they had. You know why the church is exploding in Africa and the church is exploding in China? Because Christ is all they have. Over here, we have so much that we love more than him. It dilutes the message of the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean we have to feel guilty for having lots. It just means it's a lot harder to have perspective. It's a lot harder to cut through the garbage and see what really matters. That he is all that matters. One more question. How do you keep perspective? How do you keep perspective? Let's look at verse nine of chapter 12. Now, the book takes a little turn here at the very end. He spends the last few ch- uh, verses of chapter 12 kind of, kind of weird. It's like he turns the lens on himself and, and begins talking about the author of the book. It's kind of weird. But he says this. He says, besides being wise, the preacher, okay, the writer, also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly. He wrote words of truth instead, basically. So basically, he wanted to write words that, that, that were delightful and, and, and things like that, but he ended up writing words of truth. Okay, and this is just the way that he saw it. In verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one spirit. Okay, what the preacher is saying here, or whoever is writing this about the preacher, uh, the writer of this book, in other words, is that the words of this book, okay, this is where I want to hopefully give you some, uh, some value in this book to take home, okay? So you can read it in the future. See it for what it is. I want you to think about the book of Ecclesiastes as, as goads. You know what that, that, those are? There are these little nails, these little spikes that would go behind the feet of, of the animal that was plowing or whatever, a field, and it kept them going forward, it kept them moving forward, it kept them from kicking back, kept them from resisting, right? And what this book is, is it's a really heavy, heavy dose of reality that brings perspective. It's like nails that you're kicking against. When, when you start to think that, hey, maybe that plasma screen and maybe that paycheck and maybe that girl and maybe that relationship and maybe that thing will sort of just make my life better, you're kicked against these goads of Ecclesiastes that say, no, it's not. It's all vanity. It's pointless. There's no joy there. There's no life there. And even though it's depressing and even though at times Solomon, is, the preacher, is dead wrong, He's honest, and it's a dose of reality. It's a dose of reality as to how empty life is without God. I want, I want, I want you guys to remember that. So when you start to feel like you're losing perspective, go read this. And then start to think, but who am I in the Lord? This is what the world has to offer, but who am I in God? And watch the clarity begin to come back. We have to be those that are willing to deal with reality, and that's what this book is. It's just simply reality, honest reality, through the lens of the gospel. And lastly, as far as the question of how how do we keep perspective, lastly, do not look to creation to find the creator. Look at his, his last final words. He says, my son... Verse 12, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And that is the end of the book. And so sort of his last words are this. He says, my son, uh, seemingly that he's writing this to, to his son. Uh, there, there's a temptation that man has to try to overcomplicate with philosophies and with complexity of thought. 
He's basically saying, keep the main thing the main thing. And this is the number one way that we keep perspective. Don't clutter your mind. You know, you know sometimes my bent and my love for theology is my worst enemy. And this is not me demonizing theology. I love theology. But when theology clutters my understanding of who Jesus is, it, 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 can, it can be a real problem. And that's, that's not that a theology itself is cluttering. It's, it's my trying to overcomplicate the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is complex. But if it's so confusing that you can't understand it when you need it most, you're, you're making it too confusing. Don't forget the simple clarity and the simplicity of the fact that you have a God that loves you and has created you and sent his son to die for you and has called you to live for him. Don't forget that very simple truth. It's also a very complex truth. It's kind of both. It's kind of weird. Keep the main thing the main thing. Let everything point you to the truth that he is God. Let him be your lens. Let him be your filter. Let him be your perspective and everything will make sense. And in Mark chapter eight, in that story where Jesus spits on the eyes of this man and he, he can't see quite, quite clearly completely, I, I want you to take one thing from that and that's this. Only Jesus can give you complete sight. Only Jesus can give you complete sight. Okay, nothing I just said can do it. Nothing you can read, nothing that you can try on your own can give you perspective. Only Jesus can give complete perspective. Only he can. Only he can give you complete and absolute clarity. And so let's keep it really simple and keep the main thing the main thing. And when you want perspective, go to him. And he will give it to you. When you want wisdom, go to him and he'll give it liberally. He loves to give clarity. He loves to give perspective. And just like Jesus was so absolutely set on giving this man sight that he healed twice, he will do whatever it takes to give you that clarity when you go to him for it. Amen? And I just pray that this book would be a continual reminder to you guys of that. That Ecclesiastes would be a treasure that you could keep and say, man, here is a flawed guy just like me. Here is a, a, a guy who has a very limited perspective just like me, being honest about life, but he got one thing right. And that was the end when he said, no matter what, just remember him. Remember him. He's the creator. He's the source. He is the point. Amen? Cool. Let's all stand, guys. So God, tonight we just pray that the study of this book over the last few months, God, would really be um, impactful. God, it would be something that would stick with us, Lord, that as we begin, or as we continue to see the vanity of life, we would say, oh, I know why it's this way. That God, when we're let down time and time again by everything this world has to offer, we would know why. That when death creeps in and when, when health begins to decay and when relationships are strained, Lord, that we know it's because of sin, it's because of death, but God, you are stronger than death. You conquered the grave. You speak life. And God, may we keep our identity in you at the source and the center of our heart. Lord, in moments of hardship, may we remember, would you remind us, God, who we are? We wanna know you above all things, Lord. I thank you for this group. I pray as we take a short break for the summer and do other things, Lord, that you would bless our first Wednesday events, God, that that would be a, a powerful time of worship and fellowship, God. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us this summer, God, that, that we would continue to be students of the word, rooted and grounded, not like children tossed to and fro, Lord, but that we would look to your word to shape us. And God, just bless us as we go in your name. Amen. Cool, guys. So yeah, just a reminder, in two weeks, first Wednesday, next week, Awana's celebration. Don't miss it.